Good morning. This is Journeys in Podcasting. Today, I talk to Meredith Dodd, an early childhood educator from the University of Chicago Dewey Laboratory School. Meredith offers a particular perspective from the Reggio Emilia approach, where the presence of tool within an environment is given close, mindful consideration. Now, in these hybrid teaching times, Meredith combines Zoom and Seesaw to explore the digital and physical bandwidths within our reach. I work at the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools. It's a nursery through 12th grade school, and I teach nursery school. I have a two-year loop, and I start with 23 nursery school students, and I have them for two years. Oh, great. And I assume that you all also, you know, since January, February, you also went into online learning. Yes. And we'd be very interested to talk to you this morning about how that plays out uh, teaching early childhood and the tools that you use. Uh, we'll focus on Seesaw today because I know that's what you use for your documentation. And then how that plays out with Reggio Emilia and with the methods you use there at school. Great. So let's jump in. Um, so let's talk just a little bit about uh, what you do with Reggio Emilia and how you use documentation. Because what I learned from visiting your school a couple of years ago is that you have a very extensive method that creates libraries of documentation of, of children's thought. Um, so can you walk us through that in a nutshell? Sure. So um, prior to um, home learning, uh, I used a variety of methods for um, documenting um, children's work as a reflective tool, not only for the children and families, but for the um, teachers as well. And the goal is to have this documentation be um, fluid and communication tool for um, those three um, cohorts, the students, the families, and the teachers, as well as um, passing along the information to uh, my colleagues and people who come and visit the school. And the way that we have um, organized that is several ways. One is using individual children's portfolios, um, hard copies within a binder. And um, we try to have the binder be responsive and accessible for the two years that the children are there. However, some years the binders are so full that um, the first year that they just stay home. Um, and then um, we also have um, ongoing uh, visual work of the children that we put up on the walls that changes with the different explorations that we do so the children have a reference to see um, what they're working on and that we can use to point out the growth that they've had or maybe spur another new idea. Um, and for families who come in to see what we're working on. and. Um, and then the other is um, we have used um, Shutterfly in the past as a way of documentation, but also more recently Seesaw. Um, and uh, there were a few of us who started that. Uh, and now it's um, moved on through fifth grade, um, nursery through fifth grade. And it's becoming a tool where um, those portfolios individual children portfolios can be accessed um, throughout the child's um, education through fifth grade. Although that's the hope, you know, um, 
so that teachers in the upcoming grades and progression can look back, and families and children as well. And it also, just this year, which was so wonderful, um, as a supportive tool for the children and me, is that I have access to my students from previous years. And one of my students wrote me, she was in second grade and said, Meredith, are you there? Um, I miss you. And I was looking back at my the garden pictures and I missed going to the outdoor classroom. So, and then other students who saw that little message um, perk up because they have a whole view of all their um, classrooms and prior started having this conversation and with, and then the family members started having the conversations. And so it was a really nice um, dialogue into the past, but into the present where I could um, give that, you know, nursery school nurturing um, and just being able to reach out to, for children to reach out to former classmates and teachers. Um, I think for this period of time, is crucial to um, supporting that social emotional work that we do in these early years. Yeah, and you know we live in this age where so much of our lives are digitally documented. I'm fascinated by how that brings up a new awareness of our own development. Mm -hmm. You can scroll back to the beginning of your Instagram feed or your Flickr feed and find all of these artifacts that maybe you would not have saved physically, uh, but the digital allows you to kind of revisit those moments. And the education world, where I think that's most fascinating, is that gives you these insights uh, into your own development that if you would save those physically, you may not save them. They may not last within the family archives mm -hmm. through the next couple of years. I know in this culture where I've been working, physical artifacts are not so much saved or mm -hmm. valued in that way. Whereas, you know, I grew up in like, we would have a closet full of all of our elementary school work, which we would never go look at. But you're talking about this insight into a kid's development of them having a chance to see that's where I was then. This is where I am now, that metacognition, but also to start socially constructing off of that development with mm -hmm. others. I find that quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, so let me enter a couple of things here. One is this, um, this three forms of documentation. So you have the physical binder and what that offers. Mm -hmm. And then you have this making learning visible wall uh, within the classroom, this mm -hmm. process wall, it sounds like, yeah. giving you this idea of um, this is what the kid is working on now. But I think it, what you're also talking about, and I guess early childhood people are just much more privy to this insight, is this adjacent possible idea mm -hmm. of this is what I'm working on. I put it up here and we can all talk and socially construct around that. But all this, this idea of like, I can look around and see, oh, and this is what all of my colleagues are doing mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, when you move that into digital space, that's the kind of third part that you were talking about. Have you noticed, and this is super relevant now with all of the online learning that we're doing now, have you noticed that that also opens other channels and bandwidths? that the digital can also be present in the classroom? Mm -hmm. And then how do you show that or project it or how would that be celebrated in the physical space? Right, so um, one of the most important pieces of let's say Seesaw is um, that it is a virtual communication tool with the family. And um, I use that 
not only to share videos and pictures and um, processes of how it's making visible, like um, the stories that are going along with it and then reasons why they're important. Um, I also include my meeting notes, um, daily meeting notes that um, are verbatim writing records of our two meetings a day with the whole group. Um, because most of our work um, throughout the day is small groups. So um, this is the one time we come together and meeting and that is the one piece of documentation hands down that the parents use every day at like a dinner. They read it, they get a sense of the day and they can form open-ended questions from the dialogue of the students that really run the meeting. Um, so it's not like, oh, I see you made this today. It's a way to really get the children to remember their, um, what they did. Often children like, oh, it's fine. I mean, even my 16 year old, like, we didn't do anything at school today. <laughs> oh, well, tell me about this. Um, so there's that piece, which is an instantaneous, you know, access to what the children are doing. Um, also with um, Seesaw, but beyond that, um, I really work with the students at using um, iPads or uh, digital cameras and learning how to, over time, to, um, my, it doesn't necessarily happen right at age three when they enter, but it's the whole <laughs> learning about tools like digital tools and creating um, knowledge about how they work. There are many uses. And so by even in the end of age three or four, they know how the um, camera, the iPod, iPad can be downloaded to the computer and then really scroll through the images um, and for those children who may not um, rest in the afternoon, that can be a way of um, getting insights into um, what they would like to pursue more. Um, and um, they would love, love to take videos of them um, and review those, kind of like podcasts in a way. Um, and, but... So that is like the dialogue piece. In terms of integrating um, digital technology within the classroom, um, I'm really focused on science um, and thinking about looking closely, slow looking, um, and using like the Elmo um, connected to an iPad and then a projector and Finding the little things that children love to look at the little things in their environment and put it under the microscope, and it's a whole new world. You might see a tiny little flea, or you know, wow, that's connected. There's the cycle of life. No idea about that. So, you know, micro stories can be produced, and that really goes into the Reggio Emilia approach of thinking about um, the interconnectedness of all things and. Also, um, the indigenous um, aspect of thinking about 
um, the interconnectedness of the world, which is something that I'm, I bring very much into my classroom as someone who is, has heritage in um, the Haudenosaunee, Iroquois. Um, so, and I think that balance of how technology can be used and the digital can be used to enhance our knowledge of um, the natural phenomenon of life and things that aren't living like rocks and looking closely at them and seeing the power of the earth and how we use rocks to build things or you know that they're present and purposeful and that we all have purpose and the children really resonate at at their level of you know social emotional growth um that there's caring for our environment and children know how to care they're caring beings and so that aspect of technology you really try to use that as a way to show and be a part of everything around us and that it's mathematical as well. So we bring in like that idea of parts of a whole and fractions and how many of those lines do you see in the rock? How do you, how do you imagine it got there, right? And so that goes into anything like looking at insects, bringing butterfly leaf and looking at our hands. So the lines are really important. And another thing with technology that we love to do is decomposing or taking apart computers, um, old tools, and then noticing in them the circuits. And circuits have a pattern. like They are a circle or a line that connects one piece of energy to another. And so we bring that all together. and. That would not be possible without the kind of digital tools that we have now. Fascinating. You hit like a whole slew of things that I'd like to go a little further into. And one of them, let's start with this Reggio Emilia approach. When I was introduced to Reggio Emilia, it was in Barranquilla and the school I was working at had this as their early childhood program. And then I worked in second grade, but I worked closely with first grade and kindergarten teachers to try to create a little continuity. And then one thing that I really picked up on immediately was this power of documentation. Mm -hmm. In that era, we weren't using smartphones, but we did have the digital cameras at the time. And so we made collections of these and made use them as our microscopes, as you're explaining, to view the world and to bring that into our, our classroom space. Um, I, I noticed that they were really into this idea of the mirror and then through the Reggio Emilia literature, how healthy it is for children to have mirrors in their space and to view their own affect and gesture and how they can contort themselves or, you know, playing with these kind of projections of self, so to speak. And as we are in this kind of anti-tech period, mm-hmm. uh, I find that very unfortunate because this ubiquity of camera and a video camera is opening all these other bandwidths. And as you're explaining how children see the world. And so that is something that I believe is what you're teaching is like a media literacy. Mm-hmm. My thoughts have always been that, that we need to move these devices in young and teach how they are our metacognitive mirrors of our, you know, the way we think and to get kids very used to using them as this tracker of thought, of tracker of observation and, and, and as a means to, to share that out with other people as well. So I feel like that's kind of one area that you're, you're talking through is how to use the iPad 
the camera as these um, bandwidths. This other, other part is this idea of like, you know, I think early childhood people have this lens into human bandwidth of cognition that, that we often lose as we get older. And uh, it's the early childhood uh, theories of learning that I believe uh, open that up. And so when you're working with pre-linguistic children, mm -hmm. you're talking about having them use this camera and this recording as a means of the hundred languages of children, of mm -hmm. you know, capturing the ways that we think and develop even before they can speak completely or write completely. Mm -hmm. What has that been like for you as far as not just documenting what kids can communicate, but as kids form of metacognitively reflecting on how they think? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, well, first to your idea, your, the mirrors. Um, very important in, in large part, very important birth to, you know, three talking about that language development, um, mirrors, not only, you know, are a reflection of your face, but of what's behind you. And that opens up a whole new, like, aha for children uh, or an aha for the the, um, the, the caregiver, right? Like, um, perhaps a child is upset. They look in a mirror and they can see something behind them, like to calm or maybe what they wanted, right? Like, um, so there's that language of mirrors are one of the hundred languages and, um, there's so much to do with language, with mirrors, with reflection, with looking for rainbows, just opening up a whole new world, especially when you can have a toddler or young child carry it with them. And, you know, their gestures of pointing um, or giving it to another child, and then they can't see themselves. Wait, what happened? And uh, so that's just, I wanted to comment on that with mirrors because it really does help a child move within their environment. Um, yeah, and let me jump in there just for a second so that I don't stack the ideas too much. But you're, I believe what you're talking about is this idea of our private and public selves, that mm -hmm. when a child approaches a mirror, this wall that's basically you know, their space, but you're also talking about them having this public space behind them and what that builds in kind of a social cognition of the child. Mm -hmm. Our digital tools are also affecting all of us in that way in that we are now privy and sharing ourselves in extremely private ways to a mass public. Mm -hmm. One of the, the Zoom insights has been, not to wander too far off the path, but it's been this um, deconstruction of the, the school or the classroom or the university space is the idealized democratic space. Mm -hmm. That we create this space where everyone's equal, supposedly, everyone has access to the same thing, supposedly. But all of a sudden, we're getting the backgrounds of our Zoom conversations. You know, even there's a trash can on the floor behind me. There's a clutter of post-its over here. There's a crack in the wall over here. You know, what that tells us about equity, about access, about who these students are beyond our idealized you know, flattening of that space. Uh, and so I, th I think that's what you're also talking about, is once you bring these tools in, it's... I think teaching the kid how to develop and grow in this world where they're going to have to be very comfortable with intimate space and public space and the blurring of all those lines. 
Right. Not not to get off track, but so you can come no, back no, to this later. Go, go, so, wander off the path as much as you like. Right. So one of the things that um, I explained to my families when this transition happened was that um, the here is this, as we have thought about it, this kind of sterile, you know, hard computer. You know, it's like yuck, right? And here we have to sit in front of it all day. Well, I really see it as a threshold going into across a door. And that children, and Reggio talks about this, about the eye leaping over the wall. And there's a whole new, um, it's Malaguzzi's, what is it, 100th birthday this year? And in Reggio, they were preparing this whole wonderful um, celebration of that in his term of um, the eye jumping over the wall. And it's a great metaphor, especially for this time, I think, because um, the families are welcoming in into a, like you said, a, um, their special place. Um, and there's you get to see everything going on, all the noises, especially with this young children, where there's other young children, the baby's crying, and you can see how much balance has to happen um, to have young children um, be a part of the community, of their peers, and of education. And the work, the hard work the families are doing to try to um, go across these, what can look like hard, sterile thresholds of the computer screen or of screens. And I really tried to say that this is a gentle, there's some gentleness in this. It's a way to show how we can care for each other. Um, and uh, and it, my question in the beginning of all this is how this is shifting my image of the child. Um, and I opened this up with my colleagues um, in the beginning because I was really, Um, I lost your audio there just for a moment, if you could. Oh, I'm so sorry. I think I covered my hand. Yeah, just go back like 15 seconds. Oh, okay. where you were, where, where I, I lost you was where you were talking to your colleagues about how this is changing image your image, image of the child. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, or I thought it was, and I was worried about that because my image of the child was in my classroom. Was, I was working so hard with this idea of... Um, how to use the digital to look closely at things, like you said, as a reflection back, a mirror of the classroom, um, going deeper with things. And I was just like, how do I go deeper on Zoom? And, you know, <laughs> and, you know at first, like, there were all these faces, you know, and little cubes. Um, and there were, there were children who were like deer in the headlights, right? Like, this is not Meredith. These are not my schoolmates, my Pezzettinos that we call each other. We're all little pieces of a whole. Um, and some were just like, oh, can we do this all the time? You know, and um, <laughs> so it, um, my image of the child really was strengthened in a lot of ways because um, they were saying that 
this is uh, okay, you know, in large part, and they are shifting. I mean, some children were not, right? And I talked with the families about that and about, you know, stepping back because their proximal wasn't there yet. Meeting where that child was with these tools was not there yet. And that's okay. And I think that's really important to consider in using digital technology and thinking about the digital is presenting what Reggio Emilia calls the digital environments and how you would prepare that. And to be, you know, getting close in, like if Vygotsky would say, you know, where is that child's proximate development, their, you know, zone of proximal development, and step back. Now, I'm still thinking about that, you know, for those children and families who weren't quite there yet. Um, and facilitating other ways, maybe through snail mail, maybe just on the phone, and children on the phone sometimes are like, what? But um, that's telling. And that really um, supported my image of the child, that the child was speaking to me about what they were capable of. I want to interject there just for a moment, because you opened up three concepts, but then a fourth. So one is this idea that um, our digital technologies enable us to not just be here at the screen, but we can also be mobile. I could put this on my cell phone. I could go outside to a park. And I could share all of this part of my environment that would you know, come through the screen to you. The other one is this idea of here and there, um, which I think you touched on a couple, in a couple of different ways. But it's how do we, how do we share this space? Mm -hmm. So I, I tend to put the noise cancellation earphones on and completely go into this other, other space and ignore everything here. There's construction going on across the street over there. There's someone teaching on upstairs, you know, <laughs> uh, giving a tutoring session right now, but I, I go literally completely into digital space. And then the other one is our idea of, of cave spaces. And I have read some reports of early childhood, how the kids love to make forts and put blankets around and they create this special space when they go online mm -hmm. so that they're like learning how to kind of like completely close the world off and share their, their cave environment, which I found fascinating for early childhood. And then I guess the fourth is concept is this idea that we're in something new. The silly show of the Wachowskis, the Sensates, <laughs> opened up these kind of beautiful concepts of, uh, you know, you're, you're here and you're sharing your, your, yourself with all of these people in completely different physical spaces. And that opens up a new way of being and sharing with others. And that maybe we don't have to think about these spaces as transferences of our physical environments and experiences but it's new ways to connect and share ourselves with other people, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so that that's where I was thinking as you were going into this idea of proximal development, my personal ideas on Vygotsky are that he's one of the most misunderstood thinkers in education. And the zone of proximal development is that space. Like what that offers us to me is not just next step learning. Like this is what the child is, is ready to do. But Vygotsky mainly talked about what you can do, I, I think, I, I'm not a scholar on Vygotsky, but I have read some, is that this is what I can do by myself. And then this is my leverage of tool. This is how I can extend 
the grasp of my knowledge when I interact with others, mm -hmm. when I have physical tools within my reach, I can actually grab something that's further away uh, and what I can do with language. Mm -hmm. And that that is what I believe is this kind of sensate thing is that we are um, mistakenly maybe trying to compare our digital experiences as physical experiences. But what I'm hoping that we get from this is that these are actually new ways to extend and learn. What have been, I know that's a lot to throw at you at one point, but what have been your experiences interacting with kids as far as, uh, are they finding this as new tools for cognition? Mm -hmm. um, are they finding that this is like a new way of sharing and being with others? Uh, what, what are your insights there? Uh, yes and yes. And no. <laughs> and no, and like, well, you know, so, um, again, I, you know, I had 23 students that then went, you know, to this, this, um, digital space, this digital environment. Um, and I think that, um, well, it's, this is not a language, right? This is, this computer and the Zoom and Seesaw is not a language. It is an environment, and it's one that I didn't create, right? I didn't do any of the coding for it or making of it. So one of the things that the educator needs to do is, um, and, you know, I was not, I, this is our, all, everyone's first time doing this, at least, you know, for, for our um, educational setting is, and I would, I've been doing a lot of thinking about if we have to do this, which is most likely in the fall, um, is being very intentional about um, supporting families in the construction of their digital environments at home. So like you're talking about, you know, the little forts or caves or personal space that the children construct, can construct their, they're preparing their digital environment. Right. So, um, and the, the computer and, you know, the iPad, um, and if you're not able to have those kind of tools, even a digital picture, um, iPhone where the family member, most people have iPhones, um, but they may not have the uh, financial means to have an iPad or computer. Um, that that can be one of the first things is creating, having the child think about where their space will be for themselves to do this kind of work. Um, or, you know, it's a communication tool. So, but the, the iPad or, and the phone, they have lights, you know, the flashlight. Wonderful tool. The first, like a first tool that a child can use to construct their digital environment. Shadows. What's transparent? Not transparent, right? Um, computers can, you know, provide a background of colors within a, a cozy space. Um, stuffed animals. Bringing in classroom to construct their own ideas of a classroom might look like with their stuffies um, or walls or Legos, right? Set that up. What do you remember our class or 
here I can present my space. Like I all I have a specific place in my my home that I set up with I brought all the stuffed animals from our classroom, a caring, thoughtful space with things that they knew. And they said, Oh, there's the fish. Oh, there's you know, red fox and um all the Pezzatino cubes, I brought all those back. So I think the first part, I don't know if I'm getting to your question, but... Um, well, you're, you're opening new ones okay. for sure. That, <laughs> that um, you know, agency of the child. So having the child continue to have agency over their bodies, because they are physical beings that know their, you know, environment through all their senses. Um, to be able to manage their spaces. And they may change. I mean, the forts changed a lot. And we actually used um, our curriculum to first talk about, and very clearly talk about COVID-19. They drew pictures, etc. Then introduced our, showing us if, if their maps. Now they were four, you know, going into five, but but you could do this with younger children too. Lots of children wanted to show us around their homes. So we went with that. And you can, some of them didn't have a lot of language, right? They didn't talk about it. They just showed us. And then we facilitated, you know, a dialogue, a response. Oh, we're going around the corner. Right? So we did, I did see, you know, some growth of, you know, all those cognitive skills of um, then telling us using more language of drawing and coloring and making sense of where they were at and that this time with us was kind of a school time, um, an educative time, but fun, just like at school. Um yeah, so one of the questions I wanted to ask, one, there's a couple of things I want to hear before I get to the onboarding of parents and students. You had mentioned before this idea of bringing your cultural heritage, your indigenous background into the use of our tools. And so you didn't make these tools. You didn't make Zoom. You didn't make Seesaw. However, our job as educators is to appropriate those tools for our own purposes. And we live in this time where our tools are often very disruptive to our metacognition and to our ability to document and share that with others. You know, look at our biggest mm -hmm. social media tools, Facebook, Instagram. Mm -hmm. These are purposefully designed as anti-memory devices. Like go and try to find something you commented on in Facebook a month ago. It is purposefully designed to block you from doing that. You're never going to find it. And Instagram is the same way. They put in more curation abilities but if you compare like an earlier Flickr to an Instagram, Flickr wins every time in its ability to you know, historically document things and its ability to take things happening all over the world and make groups and curations and stuff. And so this is very bothersome to me because it really affects the way you know, we start interacting. These are all little nudges to push you to act a certain way, just to keep scrolling and keep you know, basically consuming. Um, and so... That was a really important part I think you hit on is that like, look, we have these devices in our tools, but we are the masters of those. You know, the McLuhan concept of master your tool before it masters mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what I believe you're doing with the kids. It's like, 
like, look, we have all of these devices which are commercially produced, but we use them in the ways that we know are intelligent yeah. and healthy for our own kind of being. Um, sorry, that wasn't a question. I just wanted to kind of connect those things. Uh, unless you want to jump in there. Uh, no, just really quickly. Um, you know, Reggie Amelia, um, the schools have had some excellent webinars this summer um, to continue the dialogue with people who weren't able to come there, right? I was going to be going there this spring and heartache um, with a with a deep dive into documentation. Um, they've provided these webinars and one of the webinars was on children and the digital. And the quote that I love um, is one from Malaguzzi and he talks about the two intelligences of one of the computer and one of the children. And um, he said that, you know, the computer keeps um, a record, but the children bring it alive. And one of the pieces of documentation that they shared was um, a four-year-old was drew a picture. Uh, and this is part of a digital environment prod, um, exploration, drew a picture of the computer, painted it, and then had a big button and a, and a space to type something in. And the child said, you need a password to enter. But you also always need a pulsate. So there's the pulse of life. The child gives the pulse of life. And so there's this meeting um, of the intelligences. And one of the most like profound pieces, um, they showed oh, so many pieces of documentation to try to bring this idea of the digital environment to people who are like, you know, just wanting to use like a math app, right? And sit their child in front of it. But um, they showed the use with two-year-olds in the Diana School. So the Diana School has this... Um, door threshold of going outside within a covered patio, but beautiful light, of course. And the, this was very intentional on the part of the teachers, the pedagogista and the atelierista, um, to have this augmented reality. So they were playing with this idea of augmentation with the two-year-olds. Simple. They had indoors, they had cleared off a big wall and had a simple projector hooked up to a webcam that was outside on a rock. And it looked huge on the wall. And the kids were like, what? what? What's that? And they made the, you know, the leap. There's that eye going over the wall. But that was outside, but they couldn't find it. But they kept bringing them yeah. in and matching them to sizes. This is their agency. And the teacher was there at their level, slowly, you know, facilitating and asking open-ended questions or just gesturing. It opened up, um, you know, that the first steps of building how these tools, digital tools, can be used later in their educational career, right? Not career, you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, no, a couple of things. One, one is that I'm, you know, I remember seeing uh, some documentation of someone who went to Reggio Emilia a year or two ago, and they were, came back with all these images of how 
they were using projected light and using things that are transparent on the old old school, you know, uh, what do you call those? Yeah, the projectors, yeah. yeah. The projectors, which, you know, to backtrack a little bit, uh, I taught pretty high tech a long time ago at like fifth grade in Texas. And then I moved to Bolivia where I had an electrical outlet in my room, no computer, no technology. I mean, a light switch and electrical outlet. And so, you know, I had to really backtrack and be like, okay, well, you've been using all this screen and projection stuff, but now you've got to, you know, use the walls as screens and use your environment in different ways. Then I moved to Barranquilla where they had the old projectors and, you know, the transparencies and everything, and nobody was really using them. So I would like, we would make light murals in the classroom with kids illustrations and let them, you know, create this augmented reality within the class. Um, what excited me about seeing the Reggio Emilia work with light is that, and again, I believe this is addressing a media literacy problem. And that is that you know, we often teach color and the color experience as pigments, which is great. Those are physical things kids can mix and learn about how the whole color wheel works and everything. Uh, but when you look at what a kid decodes throughout their 24 hour day, it is largely digital, which means that we are neglecting the light, the pixel, and all of the elements that go into light. And so I would say our more modern tool and that what kids need to be exposed to is the RGB. You know, they need to be able to understand how light creates color and creates this whole experience. This goes back to this idea of the deconstruction of the machine that you're talking about. Kids are, you know, learning what a circuit at least looks like and that, you know, this is what our machines look like when we take them apart. So sorry, I'm kind of diverging a little bit, but I want to come back to this idea of um, the augmented reality and, and virtual realities. And that, in my opinion, this is what kids are experiencing kind of all the time. They live in augmented environments. Our cities are augmented realities, and they're learning how to decode those things all the time. Mm -hmm. It makes total sense for me for kids to play with projection mapping or play with light projections and augment their realities in these ways. And I know there's a lot of reticence about exposing kids to virtual realities that, you know, but they're still learning how to like manipulate their 360 world. Why would we throw them into this sensory environment where it's going to disrupt that environment? Personally, I don't have that fear. I think that kids should be exposed to virtual realities just because this is what they're going to be decoding or what they are already decoding much of the time. So what are your thoughts on that as far as like moving from a Reggio Emilia approach, which has traditionally been very anti-tech or, you know, almost like ignoring it other than like photography and things like that. And now there seems to be this completely bringing that into the circle. Um, what have your experience or insights been there? So I want to go back to one of the things that is at the heart of Reggio and that's democracy. If children are not aware of the power that is, like you talked about Facebook and Instagram, having ownership of privacy, of ownership of your history, you can't go back into it. You know, it's hard. So um, Reggio Emilia has talked about the importance of Taking what is there, you know where you're, where you live. The digital is all around us. You can't ignore it. So this is where the shift has come. 
you know, they are so um, thoughtful, process-oriented, and also reflective, and they go back to what is a lovable, livable environment, and that's part of their values. And it's not to ignore things and to fight against things, but it's intentional. So, um, and the other thing that they have talked about, and I mean, this goes back to David Hawkins, right? They were inspired by Hawkins, by Gregory Bateson, Dewey, Montessori. They all have in common this idea of, you know, democratic thinking and collaboration and um, pushing back against a small group of people telling you what to do and how to do it. So the, in Reggio Emilia and the way that, you know, many of us are trying to be thoughtful about the introduction of digital is to build it with care, with that idea of what is the child ready for? And also, what do I know? I, I don't really, I don't know how to use PowerPoint to, in a way where I want to introduce it to my children, right? What do I know right now? And what's available to me in my school or at my house? That's where I start. And that's what they are saying. So you say, like Hawkins talks about eolithism, you know, that idea eolithic. What do you have? What's your hammer that you can teach with, right? Well, the digital's all around us. Children look at the phones. They know how to use them. Many, and I, I don't want to, um, thinking about, you know, um, being cognizant that not everybody is, you know, has these tools. But people have tools around them that they may not know. And um, so going a little slowly, but challenging the ways that we use them, that we think we know how to use them. So this one uh, webinar is talking about children in the digital. One of the questions at the end, and this was lovely, and they spent time 20 minutes, which was so amazing that you could have these small, personal, kind of real-time discussions with the people in Reggio about the documentation they showed. And one of the questions, why didn't you use virtual reality with the two-year-olds? Like, okay, augmented and, um, you know, not necessarily digital, but they said, you know, we had considered that. The pedagogista said, yeah, we, we had considered that. There was another project, though, going on with um, the third graders who were exploring the virtual or the um, VR um, and were using all that. So we wanted to give them time to learn from that age group about how they, how they were using it. So we decided to do this with this group, age group. But I also think what, you know, you said is, you know, when I think about more about it, about cities are augmented and virtual. Well, TVs, you know, we are entering children into cartoon world. And they <laughs> think it's real, right? 
And we have not been careful. And it's all about capital, you know, like, um, and our most valuable capital are our children. I mean, if you want to think about it that way, right? Like, what can they make for each other? There's their stories and experiences. Um, so I'll pause there. Yeah, yeah. No, I I completely agree that, that kids are are part of this corporate kinder culture. I'm referring to the book Kinder Culture, where they talk about how kids have been marketed to and increasingly in ways that are they break all bounds that what's been done before. You know, if you look at, at what is marketed to a five-year-old, six-year-old now and how advertising and our digital technologies are able to kind of get in and map child heads in ways that you know, have never been accessible before um, and then turn that on ourselves. And we are also part of this whole system. If you look at how adults use technology, this is the, this is the problem. We're not modeling the creative uses of these tools. We're very much subjects to all these digital treadmills and nudging that manipulates even our, our own behaviors. And so I think, I think it's a much larger democratic question that we're talking about. Is this, it's not just about um, finding these intelligent uses for the kids to use these tools. It's ourselves. How are, are we using them? Mm -hmm. So I've looked very closely, like when we brought in iPads into the elementary schools, uh, the first thing I was fascinated by was the camera. What, I mean, that was the whole thing. I was like, if this thing was just a video camera and just a screencaster, uh, you know, with this ability to use whiteboards and things and throw different documentations in there and have kids talk over that, like they had me right there. Like that was just enough right there. I didn't need all the math apps and all the games mm -hmm. and stuff like, mm -hmm. like that. That that one particular tool to me was kind of the most powerful. But then when I looked around and I saw that like, nobody's really using it in those particular ways. I mean, I think you will find pockets of some really intelligent use of screencasting of using the camera and video in really intelligent, both metacognitive ways, but in also how we share out that thinking and construct with others. But then look at how adults are using their social medias. Like we are some of, I mean, not, you and I, but like adults in general are some of the, the worst at that, uh, that we're missing all of these affordances that these, these tools have. And so that's what I believe that you just kind of walked us through in a glance is that you know, we're missing that particular part. And to kind of bring it full circle to this idea of the VR of, you know, you're saying, yeah, we're throwing kids into these fantasy worlds before even thinking about how that, you know, affects their own cognition. To have to have cartoons running around and now uh, in more you know, virtual experiences mm -hmm. and the way that virtual reality is being designed for is a it's pretty disheartening i mean i think the place to find the most interesting work is to look at the visual arts and look at what i attend the itp camp or i went to it this summer online and i always pay very close attention to <clears throat> what are those students creating in these places because they are very much like the kids in that they're stretching the boundaries of what all of this toolkit, digital toolkit is capable of. And the VR part is, is one of the most disheartening because what VR tends to be is a reconstruction of our physical world. Mm -hmm. it's all, it solves no problem. It explores no uh, you know, methods of how we think and develop differently. Although it has all of these potentials 
I've, I've only put on VR goggles maybe two times mm. in my life. And, and I was overwhelmed by this loss of physical presence. Like it was just exhilarating mm. to be in this space where my feeling of physical presence was now had no bars to reality. You know, I could design things that were basically the size of my hands. And then I could make these things as big as the room and crawl inside them and be walking through this, you know, this whole other world. And I was thinking like, this is pretty cool for kids. Like the way they would explore with these tools would probably blow our minds yeah. and then, you know, give us new insights into kind of like how they think and develop. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't fear that part of having kids go through the disembodied VR experience. I, I think it should not be overdone, just like TV and cartoons. Mm. Nothing, none of this stuff should be overdone, but there, there is something to explore there and this new kind of creative toolkit. I wanted to um, say one thing. Yeah, I have a do. great quote for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just full of quotes today. Um, this is Malaguzzi in 1992. He said, it is necessary to know that children, although always naturally open, do not refine the art of becoming friends and teachers among themselves by plucking models out of the manuals or down from the sky. They pluck and interpret models from adults and teachers. The more so when the adults know how to be together, discuss, think, and work together. So I think that, you know, that idea of what are we modeling for the students in our youth of, you know, cooperation with whether that be with a digital tool or with each other, what does that look like? Yeah, that, I mean, I, I'm not that versed in the theory of learning around Reggio Emilia, but one thing I picked up on really quickly was this idea of documentation mm -hmm. for the adults, mm -hmm. that this beautiful idea of documentation is an act of love for the child. But then all of the construction that adults go over this, this documentation and then how different learning programs have, have also adopted that. Even the Lucy Calkins teachers reading and writing mm -hmm. program, there's some beautiful stuff there in, in the way that one, they present their literature, which I think goes back to your idea of teacher as ethnographer, yes. that you record your conversations, that you go back and reflect on them. And if you look at how Lucy Calkins writes from lessons from a child onto the more modern units of study, it is complete, you know, documentation of dialogues. Mm -hmm. You know, I know the math learning center also uses that same method that, you know, you learn from reading these kind of scripts of this is what the teacher said, this is what the student said. So you can get an idea of, of what this social construction around documentation looks and feels like. So that was like one really beautiful part of it. And then how our digital tools will, as you're using Seesaw, mm. and just blend straight into that same thing. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, I lost my train of thought to the second thing I wanted to say, but I want to bring it back to, I know that I originally approached you to interview about your use of Seesaw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I want maybe just talk about kind of the toolkit that Seesaw does offer. Like why was, why this tool, why not? Mm -hmm something else like what what have you found in the mechanics of seesaw that enable all of this other kind of reggio emilia approach that we've mm -hmm. been talking about can I, i'm going to start with what it doesn't do yeah <laughs> all right can i do oh. that um yeah. so one of the things that i just as you were talking about facebook and um instagram and stuff is the 
most frustrating part, and they have worked on this. So, and that's the other thing. This uh, Seesaw is a wonderful, I think, company because they have listened to us, the teachers and the families. Um, and they have provided amazing professional development um, from practicing teachers and people on their staff, a, a whole host of things. Um, not just using Seesaw, but about pedagogy and practice, um, which I was kind of like, I don't know, but I was, um, I was impressed. So it's the scrolling feature, right? Can't, it was so hard to find anything. And even though we had um, set up each child to have their own portfolio um, with their responses to the activities we set up, the, there was also all, because we would post things to everybody, and then they would, or, or there were um, the meeting notes posted. And people would, the families had to scroll through that. And I've used it for, you know, two years prior to the home learning. And there was just not an easy way to find things from the three-year-old year for them, for the families or for us, because we were looking to do a um, two-year retrospective. Um, so, and using photos and videos to construct that. It was hard to find, even though I have another place to store all those. Um, so that was one, and they're working on that. I think they've solved that problem about how to search. Um, and then, um, and it, you know, I mentioned another platform that I used to use, Shutterfly, and I found that so useful. And I'm so sad <laughs> I <laughs> use it because you could really construct it more to how you teach. Mm -hmm. and um, create... What, what do you mean? What did Shutterfly afford that, that Seesaw is not fulfilling? So there's, it, Seesaw just has like one mapping of how to use it, right? So it's really built more for K and up. Um, for lessons, lesson planning, right? And you do this, you take a picture of it or a video, you can click on um, a link to go see something and do research and click it back. There's lots of uses of icons, which is really great for um, children who understand icons, right? And there are messages and icons, pictorial messages all over our environment. So I've thought about, you know, how to begin our exploration of icons with three-year-olds because they'll get used to that, right? I mean, it plays right into language, and I think it's beautiful. Um, but that's not something that the, the youngest students can use independently right away. So, I mean, teaching five-year-olds and younger, and I would argue even kindergarten, first grade, and second grade really requires a family member, a caregiver, an older sibling to be there and help navigate. So um, that is a little, you know, learning curve for some. And then um, they have a great library. I think Seatsell is wonderful for, share, for collaboration among colleagues. 
because there's, you know, you can do grade level um, libraries like nursery three, nursery four, kindergarten, or you could decide to share your whole, you know, an activity with the whole school. So that is like a wonderful, I'll get back to Shutterfly in a second. A, what I love about Seesaw is that it is helping us build collaboration among um, colleagues where we used to be, you know, that saying that teachers, it's a lonely profession because you stay in your classroom. Um, this really um, provides an opportunity to quickly share. Now you still have to want to do that, right? But there is more of um, people who are looking to do that and uh, coordination among our school leaders to say that we are going to be doing this because um, this is such a uh, needed way to learn and share what each other are doing. And I think it's also a wonderful opportunity for if you have a, um, a teaching and learning coordinator or even someone really interested in looking at the documentation among classrooms or through progressive education, seeing how progressive education is at threes and fours and on up and documenting and finding those threads of continuity of the values, the ideas that are central to your school and bringing those out and making them visible for families, for, I mean, even marketing of your school, right? There's, there are those possibilities um, there. Um, and uh, it's also, you know, a really great tool for your own reflection for, um, of your team or your own self. Um, because you also see how many children have interacted with a certain activity. And, you know, this was such a difficult time for families to balance all this because they were teaching or working. So at sometimes I only had eight out of my 23 students participating. And, you know, I, that was okay. And as a school, we said, you know, do what you can. We just want everybody to be safe, right? Like that's our number one priority. Um, do what you can. But I really was like, I need to hear from everybody once a week. <laughs> and so, and I would all these opportunities to, um, I did one-to-ones Zoom with every child every week for an hour um, over, you know, the week. So 20 minutes, three times a week or something like that. But I really was very important to maintain that one-to-one. -one. Um, and we, we might just sit there. You know, and a child might just be doing Legos. That's at school, too. I learn a lot just by observation. Some were very different, right, just like they are at school. Um, small groups um, facilitated. And then the documentation to share that. So I would also... Make sure, like, I video recorded the Zoom and sent it out. This is what I learned from this group um, and had the children look together on it. I mean, it was all developing. I didn't, it was exhausting. You know, it was just everyone was exhausted during this time. So it was really just like, well, I'm going to put this in my, you know, file for what I can do next year, you know, mm. to enrich them. You know, I remember 
from about 2006 to 2010, there was this really exhilarating ed tech time where we realized all these affordances that these tools had and things were just coming out all the time. So like Nearpod came out and I was like, this affords all of these things. And then there's Mural and you know, kind of a Milanote is the modern uh, version of that, uh, even though Mural's still there as well. The Google Apps for Education were developing at like rapid space. And what I've noticed since then is this is kind of frustrating part of like, oh, well, now they're all just these tools in the market and they, many of them have not progressed. Uh, Seesaw kind of grabbed me with their um, promotional video, which is very well done. You know, the first thing it says is that remote learning has happened for time immemorial, you know, immediately putting us in this current space and time. Uh, I thought that was very thoughtful mm -hmm. of how they were, you know, knew that that is like the right thing to be marketing to in this moment. Um, but for me, no one tool has ever really been the thing. You know, like you know, Google Doc, it can do open up incredible things for you know young writers and stuff. Um, but it certainly doesn't get at the multimodality multimodality that is afforded by you know, iPads and everything. So it's kind of like realizing that you have to start connecting all these pieces. Is that what you find with Seesaw that do you start having to like rethink like, okay, well, this is what we can do just with the child and the device itself using the mm -hmm. camera and the video. And then this is what we can do if we combine that with, I'm not sure if you're using screencasting apps, you know, explain everything or show me. Mm -hmm. um, and then this is how that can be uploaded into a Seesaw environment. Uh, do you find that you're, too restricted by seesaw can you bring in other considerations for with the tools at hand yes what are your what are your experiences um so yes um i definitely bring in other tools um to expand you know their uh, ability to have languages um i guess one of the things that i really did let's see let me pause because i was losing my train of thought um, the, all right, so see, okay, this is where I wanted to start. So Seesaw has the video, the pictures, but also they have a writing app, you know, on it so that the children can, it's like on an iPad where you can change the color of the background or, you know, you know, have put your picture into this page and so that was very novel you know and also take pictures so that that's the back your background for when you're talking on zoom right so they loved those and i went mm -hmm. with it like here is a digital tool that the children have agency with that they know how to share now that it's you know two months in or even four to six weeks especially this one child and it made sense that this one child who really doesn't, you know, is very active, even at school, wanted to move around, talked while she was moving around, and she learned how Seesaw could capture her, you know, and bring her to us. Even when we were having Zooms, she was moving around and, um, I never said sit down, right? Like, you can't do that. What am I supposed to do, right? Like, you know, no. I let her be who she was, and then she would come back to the screen and draw, and she had been taking pictures all this time. 
you know, input that, download it or upload it to Seesaw onto this screen, the writing screen, have um, beautiful um, narrated images. And, you know, so she taught us that. I used that, my, my co-teacher and I used that um, in our lesson planning, in our activities and said, went back to her and said, you know, uh, Martha, please, what do you, would you like to create our next lesson you know, or our next exploration for the week? We saw this and we were so inspired. Could you, you know, videotape your, your steps for this? Just like design thinking process, right? So they brought that. Many children then were like, I want to teach a lesson. You know, I want to do this. So it inspired all the children to be the teachers, just like they are in the classroom. Um, I did not get to that point where, you know, I, I would love to do like podcasting, even with three-year-olds, having that kind of component, you know, link it into the activity. You go here and you do this. Or um, I'm sure there's even like stop motion techniques that you could do with Seesaw, you know, take the picture, many pictures of a series of something, how something moves, put it up there, right? So I'm just thinking at, you know, a very um, early childhood, three to five year age. Um, there's lots more that I need to explore, but I guess the way that I would input and use multimodal um, technology would be to create like an activity, say, go to this link, we're going to use this for this week or whatever, play around with it. You know, I'll be talking with you, you know, uh, alongside with synchronously. Um, and we can explore it that way. Um, oh, I like that. It's uh, something I've been kind of playing around with as well. I've been really into this kind of my own geek geek space, but also how this can become more interactivity on screen is like OBS, so like broadcasting software mm -hmm. and how you can pull in all kinds of different things in live time. Right? Something that like Zoom sort of gets at, I mean, you can share screens and you can create that interactivity a little bit there, uh, but to kind of crank it up a little bit more is like you know, a production center. If we can't meet in physical space, we need more experiences together. And if the only experience we have together is kind of the Brady Bunch screen, um, that can be somewhat limited. So I was thinking something very along the lines of what you just talked about of like creating ventures where mm -hmm. we will explore other digital spaces. And that other digital space could be everything from a Google document or a Google sheet to a more virtual experiences where maybe we shift and go to another virtual environment where kids can move around mm -hmm. in the 360 space. There's many of these popping up that. that are super exciting because it kind of unflattens the screen. You know, we can sort of get away from flat land and have kids, maybe not for the whole time, because just like a classroom, they'd be running all over the place, but let them explore what it means to move around in a 360 space and interact there. There's audio video interactions in these spaces as well. So that part's super exciting as well. I'm looking at the time, yeah. excuse me, because I, you know, I never kind of said it as an hour. Uh, I want to ask you one more thing, just because I know that many teachers, myself included, are about to go back into trying to onboard 
a classroom community in a digital space. And I'm not sure if you're working with the same kids you were working with last year, which would be most advantageous, mm -hmm. but many of us are going into working like in our particular situation, we're in Bogota, Colombia. We're contracted to work in Khartoum, Sudan, starting in two weeks. Mm -hmm. But what we'll most likely be doing is teaching digitally here to a physical classroom of a few students, and then other students will be digitally connected. So it's really gonna mm -hmm. stretch like how we're able to create community between these spaces. Personally, I find it, this is all horrible and it's not optimal learning by any means, but I'm very excited to play with this idea of, okay, how do we, how do we do this? Mm -hmm. How do we create these interpersonal connections that creates a community? How do we socially construct together? So it's not just me setting up a digital platform of learning, which you could get from any kind of Khan Academy or right. there's many, many ways that now <laughs> even young kids can access like a unit of study. Right. Um, so, while that is one goal is to create the completely, like I'm thinking about it as like moving from the spectrum of you will not interact with these kids. How will you set up a digital learning environment? And then you can start inserting yourself. What would be the most priority moments, which I think you already hit on is you talk to your kids for an hour, one-to-one -one in this digital space. So how would we put that in first? And then, and then how would we put in our synchronous time and then what do we do with all of our asynchronous time to maximize and squeeze out the meaningfulness of the synchronous time? And so kind of thinking about it as like pure digital to pure physical, and then maybe that will help me prioritize like what I can most do in the, in the synchronous interactive time and what I do asynchronously. What are your plans just projecting forward? What, what are your things that you're going to try out to onboard and get a classroom community going when we can't have the proximics of physical space. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I always think about, even with older students, is what can be tangible, right? Something concrete that every student might have in their home in their home environment. So um, for young children, you know, I've talked about the name of my classroom are the Pezzatinos and little little pieces of a whole. There's the book by Leo Leone called Pezzatino. And um, that when Pezzatino rolls down the hill, he breaks in, or they break into lots of little pieces and he puts himself back together again. And he's himself. And all of his friends are like, what? We're happy you're happy. That's, that's the thing. So in creating a community of many different people, many different pieces, but we're all here in this learning context. What is something tangible, something that the, student can have in their home that can represent that time and that remind them that they're a, a part, a very important part, a participant with other people, community members, and that um, they can look at that and know that I am learning alongside and with them. You know, that's where, like, that's why I say, oh, we're Pezzatinos. They all get that, right? So and then at the end of five or even three, they're like, we're pieces of a whole. We're all connected. So that I find a really pow a powerful metaphor and a piece to carry with them. Or it's like, what do we all have in common, right? Our fate, you know, we see each other, Zoom faces. Um, we, you know, I don't know. We all have ears, right? So 
for my age group, that is what I'm thinking about. And um, also having the, the caregivers participate in that, understanding the importance of that. And um, they always do. So I have a book that I always read, The Pesatinos, and I um, make sure they can find that online so that they can get back to it anytime they want or feel like they need to be connected with us. Um, and um, they also learn that everybody's a Tetsutino, that we could not be who we are in our world without you know, everybody and every non-living thing. So um, that's how I start to create community um, and that and sharing and everybody's holding up their, you know, cube or whatever it is. I send a cube to everybody. Um, that's my gesture of going over, you know, the wall. You physically send it to their homes. I will, yeah, this year. This last year, I oh, very cool. gave it, you know, sent it along with them. Um, so, yes, then I'll build on that. I mean, related, but definitely different context. We were closing down school with a group of teachers that my partner works with, and they were having their final end of the year happy hour. And we were like, well, this is kind of lame. Like, we're just all going to meet on Zoom. I'm like, how do we how do we make this super interactive? So I spent the whole morning preparing uh, 12 margaritas, which we then wrapped in plastic and soft paper and stuff, and then had a, a delivery guy take a motorcycle and drive them to 12 different spots around the city with basic instructions of add ice and meet at this time on Zoom. So everyone's holding their margaritas. That's so great. I mean, the physicality of the sharing. The physicality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like I could go on for about 10 more hours. <laughs> it just, the notes I've taken from the concept you brought are just incredibly exciting to reflect on. And, and you know, I think there's a lot here. There could be a whole nother session just on you know, plans for onboarding, getting parents online for this, and, you know, working from the strengths that we do have mm -hmm. of, this home learning experience has happened for time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And now we have this advantage of having the digital interaction around it. So how do we, you know, build forward from there? I think those are some, some points of strength that we have, even though how lame it will be to start school without actually having a physical you know, place to share or whatever, especially with early childhood. I can't imagine uh, doing it with that age, I, but at the same time, I'm watching very closely because I feel like that's where a lot of the exciting insights are for learning how to do this better. Mm -hmm. Meredith, thank you very much for taking the time and, and thought process to walk me through all this. Thank you. Um, and how do people, I know that you are a pretty open source and if people are interested in following your work or writing thought, what is out there for people to tap into? With me or outside of? With, with you. Or, or where would you point me? Um, well, people can get in touch with me I mean, at the University of Chicago Lab Schools if they want to chat about these ideas some more. Um, I don't have a website right now. Um, go to Reggio Child. Um, go to Boulder Journey School website. They have amazing documentation. 
um, online and they're very open and have free webinars often. And um, uh, what is it called? Videotids. Videotids is with um, their online video documentations that are really powerful for um, looking at children's work closely, analyzing it. Um, and that's with a man named George Foreman. Um, and they probably are doing a lot of innovative work right now with online learning. Um, boy, there's some more I, I could go towards, but it's, I, I can't get to it right now, but I can send you some information. Oh, very cool. Great. Well, thank you for spending the hour. If you'll stay connected just for a moment, I'm going to end recording here. Okay.